Hello and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture and issues relevant to our profession. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. Before we get into the episode, I want to acknowledge that we're right now in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're all adjusting in a really unprecedented time. I hope you're all staying safe and healthy and caring for each other as much as we can in these times. In the face of so much uncertainty, I've been coping by focusing on all of the things big and small that I have to be grateful for and taking things one day at a time. I hope today's episode will give you a little bit of respite from what's going on out there and remind you of times when we were able to gather and to travel. Today's episode is very unique. It's a two-part episode featuring architect Helena Arouette. Helena started working for John Lautner in 1971, and she rose to the role of chief architect in his office. She continues today as principal of Lautner Associates, most recently completing the restoration of the Bob and Dolores Hope House in Palm Springs. I first met Helena at Palm Springs Modernism Week back in February, where she was there as an honored guest presenting her work. The day before her presentation, she volunteered her time to talk with the 8th graders from Miss Patton's class at the St. Teresa Catholic School. Part 1 of this episode is a recording from the wonderful interviews she did with the 8th graders. And Part 2 is my follow-up with Helena when we returned back to Los Angeles. Without further ado, let's get started with Helena's conversation with 8th graders Abriana Pingleton, Shelamith Hoy, Tyler Bloomer, Santiago Garza, and Julia Fidel. Good afternoon, Ms. Emmett. We're pleased to have you with us today for a special interview on your work with John Lautner, with whom you worked on a copious sum of project for many years until his passing. How did you meet John Lautner, and what inspired you to work with him? Well, um, I did my architectural studies in Argentina. I studied at the University of Buenos Aires. It's a six-year program, and I had to work my way through school. So um, I chose to work in architectural offices and construction companies, which was in fact encouraged by the school because I was acquiring experience in real life on the same subject that I was studying about in school. Um, So by the time I graduated, I had five years of experience, and uh, we had uh, many different subjects, among others, um, history of art and architecture, and one entire chapter in third year of history of art was Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, And uh, besides Frank Lloyd Wright, Uh, Some of his apprentices or contemporaries were mentioned as Richard Neutra and John Lautner. So I, in fact, heard of Mr. Lautner while I was still in school. Later on, I moved to Los Angeles with my husband. Actually, my parents were living in Los Angeles, and um, I had to look for work. And uh, somebody gave me a telephone number for Mr. Lautner's office. I called him, and uh, I wanted to visit the office. He said, sure, come on over. And when I arrived, 
He showed me his sketches of a house that he was designing in Acapulco. And he told me that he actually needed a designer or an architect who would be familiar with architectural concrete, which was my expertise, the metric system, because the structural engineers were in Mexico, and the Spanish language, because um, the drawings had to be both in English and Spanish. So I qualified on three accounts. He hired me. And when I saw those sketches, I thought, oh my God, this is like fairy tale in architecture. In architectural students could dream of such beautiful designs. But this man was actually getting them built. So that's how I started. And it was a long time ago, 1971. So I ended up working for Mr. Lautner for 23 years until his passing. And we had made arrangements for me to continue the office, which is what I have been doing for the last 25 years. Please describe your experience working with Mr. Lautner. What was the best part of working with him? Well, uh, I would say his creativity. He had a very open mind, um, and um, he was always looking for new solutions, new technologies, um, and uh, he, he never actually taught or would give you any thorough explanations. Uh, he did what Frank Lloyd Wright used to do, which was learning by doing. He, was, he would throw the problem or the design at you, and then you were expected to do the absolute best you could. At this point, I would also like to mention, he had a small office, only four people maximum. When work was really slow, one me, <laughs> or two people. And he always hired women because he believed that women were more conscientious, more dedicated, more, you know, hardworking than the guys. So obviously he had both, you know, men and women designers working for him, but um, it was fairly common which for me was actually the norm. I would like to add to that, that when I did my architectural studies in Argentina, in the architectural school, about 40, 40% of us were girls. Yeah. So it was very typical for a woman to study architecture, while it's still fairly rare here, unfortunately. So go ahead. <laughs> Sign up <laughs> and continue your studies. What was your favorite building experience with Mr. Lautner and why? Well, uh, there is not one favorite. Each one was unique and tailored perfectly to um, the site, the orientation, uh, the particular client, and uh, Mr. Lautner made an effort of avoiding to repeat himself. 
So each new project was a fresh start. And when someone would ask him which was his favorite building, he would invariably answer, the next one. <laughs> and I give the same answer. You know, the, the most interesting and challenging work for me will be my next project. What is your favorite memory of Mr. Lautner? What do you remember most about him? Well, uh, it's been many years, and uh, I think the fact that he was so sensitive to many different things, uh, he was interested in everything. So this sort of universal man, the fact that an architect has to be a well-rounded person. So he was interested in music and in literature and in philosophy, in art, technology, all kinds of things. How do you describe the architectural process? Do any of these ideas reflect Mr. Lautner's hallmark of organic architecture? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and again, uh, I, I would gradually understand what his design process was. He was greatly inspired in nature and the way nature creates, uh, which is about growth and evolution. He spoke of Frank Lloyd Wright as the great genius in architecture, and I shared, obviously, his opinion. So the way nature creates, if you think about it, you look at any natural, uh, whether living or not living thing, and um, uh, I think in the concept of beauty, we all can agree that the beauty is always in nature and the common sense and every part of every creature is there for a reason. And usually it's beautiful or else if it's ugly is to deter predators, but you can never talk about styles in nature. Nature is permanent, it's timeless, right? You cannot say, this mountain is a Victorian mountain, <laughs> and, uh, you know, this, whatever, creature is a modernist creature. It's of universal value and beauty. So uh, it's worth taking time, analyzing, everything that has been created, and just use the philosophy and the principles to inspire yourselves in creating. Are there any unbuilt projects you have worked on with Mr. Lautner? Oh, many, many, I would say. And this is uh, true with uh, many architects, that uh, especially when it comes to people's homes. Um, whatever happens to the family, if there is a death in the family, a divorce, illness, then often the project you know, goes and built. And uh, Mr. Lautner did other projects besides houses, 
but he's best known for his homes. And people tend to label everybody as an expert, which for him was a bad word. You know, if he wanted to insult you, he would call you an expert. Because for him, that concept meant a very narrow-minded person who would know precisely just a small range of things, but not the global things. And people tend to think that if an architect does home, excuse me, does homes, he's an expert in homes, and he cannot do other projects. So uh, it's harder to find uh, other more diverse projects. In my case, I did uh, other projects, uh, restaurant and nightclub, and but still mostly people call me to do their dream houses. How have you contributed to the efforts to preserve the memory of John Lautner and his legacy? Well, uh, I try to speak of his work uh, as much as I can. And then when it comes to uh, restoration, I usually don't do restoration work unless it's John Lautner's houses or I've done some remodel or restoration of Frank Lloyd Wright's inspired houses. So I try to honor his memory. I feel I owe him, you know, the, all this experience and also the credit that he gave me by writing in the book that he had published, dedicating it to me as the chief architect in his office for over 20 years. And this, of course, was a wonderful introduction to future clients. Can you tell us a little about your family and background? My family and background, well, maybe I will start from... My, my grandmother was actually a physician one of the first two women who finished medical school a long, long time ago. So um, I grew up with this notion of uh, women being able to accomplish anything they wanted, go into any field they were interested in. Um, my father was a mechanical engineer who was greatly disappointed when I told him that I wanted to be an architect and not a mechanical engineer. And my mother taught languages. Um, they saw, I mean, my parents saw some talent in me for art when I was little. I loved to draw and do sculptures. So they got an art teacher. And initially, I thought that I would become an artist. Uh, then I loved reading. I was an only child, so when my friends were not available for playing when I was little, I read. My parents read a lot. And I read about famous painters. And then I realized that um, a lot of them died in poverty, so maybe art was not, you know, if I wanted to be self-sufficient, uh, it was not the best field for me. 
at the same time, because of my reading and my love of history and history of art, and then I like putting things together, taking them apart, and so on, uh, which was like the technical aspect, construction, art, history of art and architecture, then I found, and I'm repeating myself, the same question, uh, that architecture had it all. That's why I decided to be an architect. Um, what was it like going from uh, Belgium to Argentina to the U.S.? Well, uh, it was obviously, I was only four years old when I moved from Belgium to Argentina. So when you're four, you can learn any number of languages and speak as a native with no accent at all. English was a different story. You can, everybody can tell that, you know, I'm not American. English is definitely not my first language. But um, fortunately, my parents had the vision to have me take English lessons when I was still fairly young. So by the time I arrived in the United States, I was fairly fluent in English. And of course, there is a great age difference. You know, your experiences when you are four years old and you're in a kindergarten with other kids, and when you arrive in the States and you start working in an architectural office as an architect that was licensed already in Argentina, then it's, it's definitely very different. Uh, why did you choose to come to the U.S. Uh, for uh, work in architecture? Well, uh, actually it was because my parents had moved to Los Angeles when I was just starting, I was in first year of architectural school, and uh, I wanted very much to be an architect. And uh, the best uh, university in Argentina is free, totally free. And it's the toughest and the, the one that has the greatest prestige. While I knew that uh, architectural schools in the US were very expensive. I had to work my way through school um, in Argentina, but there's no way I could have done that in the States. So um, after I graduated, my parents kept insisting, why don't you come here? At least we were married by then uh, for one year or two years. And we said, okay, so we left our condominium in Buenos Aires, Argentina, came here, and we intended this to be like an extended vacation with work. But then I found work with John Lautner, and uh, it was so exciting that we didn't go back. If you don't mind me asking, were there any substantial obstacles for females in architecture, particularly during your earlier years in the architectural business? Obstacles for females? Yes. Um, not that I was aware of. It's just because I took for granted that it was perfectly normal to be a woman in architecture. And um, uh, back in Argentina at the university, 
Very many of our professors, even in technical subjects such as concrete structures, for instance, were women engineers and women architects. So, in my view, it was normal, and I never realized that I had to have some difficulty by being a woman. Besides, in Argentina, I had to go to the job site, high rises, and I did structural drawings, and I had to inspect all the, the rebar in the beams. So I was surrounded by workers, and they were also used to having women at the job site. So they were extremely respectful, and uh, I never had a problem, so I did not expect problems here. I was a natural. I never had any problem, actually. Is there anything that Warner has told or taught you that has truly made an impact on you? Well, I think it was a, a gradual process of discovery. Uh, learning by doing is a continuum. <clears throat> so it was not one single thing. It was the exposure and the need to, to do the best I could which is what he expected at all times. So now I have the next few questions which are focused more towards the Bob Hope remodel. Yes. What were you originally contracted to do for the remodel? Uh, well, uh, the, the house was for sale. After a number of years that both Mr. and Mrs. Hope passed away, their daughter, who inherited the house, put it up for sale. And the current owner, uh, who loves both Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture and the Lautner architecture, and he actually used to own the Elrod house and also the Ennis house, Frank Lloyd Wright's Ennis house, was interested in buying the Hope house. And he found out that I was the uh, project architect of the house when it was built 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I was driving from Los Angeles to Palm Springs two, three times a week, uh, going to the job site, meeting with Mrs. Hope mostly, and I had two draftsmen assisting me, but I was in charge of the project working for John Lautner, of course. Then, uh, as we were finishing the construction, pretty much um, the interior designer, who was Mrs. Hope's personal friend, had a totally different vision of uh, interiors that really clashed with the architecture so they started, you know, doing a lot of work, extra work that we were not entirely happy with, to tell the truth. And this uh, new owner wanted to know whether it was possible to bring the house to what John Lautner would have liked. Mm -hmm. So he found out that I was the original project architect. He came to my office and interviewed me. And then we went to the site, and he asked me to explain what I could do to the house. 
there was a lot of additional construction done that did not really agree with the house itself. So I described to him, well, we should demolish this and this and that, and this should be changed to remove all these mirrors and golden and you know wallpaper finishes and uh, <clears throat> he was uh, I did some drawings for him also and he was happy with that so he decided to actually buy the house and uh, I was the you know I became the architect in charge of um, remodeling it to a point that um, uh, I believe that John Lautner would have liked. And that brings us to our next question. What would you consider the biggest challenges um, that you faced in the new it, It's hard to say. I pretty much decided that uh, what had to be done, and because I had the full support of the owner, I did not really find any terrible difficulties. Besides, I have to give a lot of credit to um, the general contractor who uh, had uh, a number of subcontractors who were excellent craftsmen. So everybody took a lot of pride in the work that they were doing and the quality of the work itself was excellent. It is to my understanding that you, um, that the main purpose of the remodel was to correct it to Lautner's taste. However, were there any aspects that were surely influenced by you or the current owner, or was it all focused on correcting it to Lautner's taste? Well, not entirely uh, about bringing it back to what it was then, because I had the opportunity of witnessing throughout all the years that I worked for John Lautner, how he remodeled or restored his own houses. So his work in restoration was not about bringing everything back to what it was, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, he was always trying to make it better. Mm -hmm. So it was, again, about the concept of growth and evolution. So where I saw possibilities of making it better, I was not attempting to recreate what was done then. I knew uh, John Lautner well enough mm -hmm. to feel very confident that he uh, from up there was approving what I was doing right down here. Well, as although everyone does say that um, the remodel was a masterpiece, what would you specifically say that you, what um, specific aspect would you say that you are most proud of? Well, uh, you cannot divide uh, a building in, in parts. Uh, I would say it's the total feeling. Uh, perhaps in a general sense, uh, the house was very cold, very high ceilings, uh, not very good lighting, so I did everything I could to warm it up. I added interior um, 
finishes using a lot of wood and natural, always natural materials, wood and stone, and I designed uh, a lighting system which um, pretty much, um, you know, brought the scale a little down, made it more human and contributed lighting and the overall feeling of warmth to the house. What would you consider the high point or the crowning achievement of your career? High point of my career? Uh, I hope it's not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and lastly, um, are there any goals that you still have in your career or in architecture in general? Well, uh, I would like obviously to continue working even though I've been working for 50 plus years. I love my work. I cannot quit it. You know, you cannot tell a musician, stop, don't do more music <laughs> or a painter, stop painting. So for me, as long as I have work, I would love to continue. Other than that, I think it's very important to pass the torch to the younger generations, try to inspire and uh, educate where I can. So, um, you know, the, the good work can be continued. And that concludes our interview. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to meet with us today. We truly appreciate the opportunity to sit down and talk with you, and we truly commend you for your dedication and architectural abilities. Well, thank you. I really appreciate and I enjoy doing this. The 8th graders did such a fantastic job interviewing Helena that when I met up with her again, I really just had a few follow-up questions for her. We met at her home office surrounded by architectural models, accolades, and personal notes written to her from John Lautner. Here's some of our conversation. When you got your job with John Lautner, um, did the person who connected the two of you know that that's who he was looking for? Or was it just luck? Well, uh, the person who gave me the phone number was a mechanical engineer who had done some consulting work with my father, who was also a mechanical engineer. And my father happened to mention that his daughter, who is an architect, is coming from Argentina. So uh, Leonard Malin, mm -hmm. Oh. Uh, the owner of the Chemosphere house told him, oh, I know a very good architect, so make sure she gives me a call and I'll give her his name. So that's how the connection happened. Wow. <laughs> that's uh, quite a connection to, to get a job in Lautner's office. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I went to one of the other talks at Palm Springs, uh, Modernism Week, where it was the daughter of Leonard Malin. She showed some photos and talked about the building of the chemosphere. Mm -hmm. And it was really, it was really interesting. It seems like now it would be really difficult to build something like that, um, just with codes and how hard it is to get something built. Well, 
I don't know how exactly she presented it because I did not attend that talk. But after John Lautner passed away, the owners of his houses called me and asked me to organize the group for meetings because they had similar concerns in terms of upgrading or restoring their homes. Also, there were many requests for photo shoots or filming, so we met at several locations, among others at the Chemosphere House. And I had the original owner, Len Malin, and the original builder attend, and they were happy to present a video and discuss the whole story of how the house was built. And then, of course, I heard from John Lautner directly how and why it was built the way it was. Mr. Malin was young then, and he got the lot as a gift from his father-in-law, but it was so steep that it was considered unbuildable. So after visiting the property, uh, Lautner thought for quite a while, and he came up with the idea that the least expensive way to build was to just install, you know, one very heavy footing and a hollow column through which all the plumbing and electrical would go and a lightweight steel framing for the floor and uh, laminated wood structure for the roof. It would have been very expensive to build retaining walls, while this way he was able to preserve the natural slope and have a house on it. But then it was published all over the world as if it was uh, the flying saucer, which had absolutely nothing to do with the way the house was conceived. So Mr. Lautner was often misinterpreted this way. You know, his solutions were always one of a kind, but a result of common sense solutions. Yeah, I think... What strikes me about a lot of the images I've seen of Lautner's architecture, and now in your work as well, is this um, connection to view and to the place and the expansiveness of space you feel when you're inside. It always feels larger than the actual spaces, even when it's a large space. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there are these very sculptural forms there's like this continuity of, of that spaciousness that I see in the work. Would you agree with that? Or Yes, uh, he definitely designed the house from the inside out. In architecture, contrary to sculpture, for instance, rather than viewing the building from the outside, it's all about being inside, in the space, and how you mold that space inside the sculpture. So the outer form is a direct consequence of how you're treating the interior. So with the design process then, like at the beginning of a project, do you approach it with in mind how you want the space to feel and then the outside kind of is a result or is it a back and forth of the two? No, the outside is a result but 
what conditions the design is really the location, which is something, you know, basic that you study in school, too. Mm -hmm. You have to do site analysis, right? So you have to go to the site and uh, see where the axis is, which are the best views, what kind of climate, the orientation for sun control, for instance. But again, each site is different. And then you have to sit down with the client and interview the client extensively to find out first what his lifestyle is, his likes and dislikes, For instance, I personally would always ask my client whether he or she would feel more comfortable with curved sheltering forms and spaces or uh, cantilevered, angular, you know, very elegant forms. And uh, some clients would tell me, oh, no, no, I really don't like curves at all. Others would say, well, I like both. Typically, I tell them the only thing I try not to do is squares because I find them too confining. But other than that, you know, it is for the architect to design everything that, you know, is compatible with the client and not to forget that it's the client who's going to live there if it's a home So uh, you're trying to enhance the client's uh, life. And uh, among creative people, it always happens that they tell you later how the house inspires them to be more creative. So this is a a good thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I would like to add to that the fact that because every person is different, and every site is different, you get from there the clues that you need to do a different design every time, which is far more interesting than finding a solution that you'd repeat over and over again. Right. I think that that's very true. Obviously, there's a lot of similarities between the way you approach architecture and the way that John Lautner did. I thought it was really interesting because after your presentation in Palm Springs, one of the women in the audience got up and I thought she asked you a really interesting question about what it's like to work for someone like John Lautner, who had such a strong and unique uh, voice in the architecture community, and then what it was like for you to develop your own voice and, you know, whether it was difficult or, or easy because of your viewpoints in architecture being very similar. Can you talk more about that? Yes, and I, I have to say that, among other things, what inspired me to study architecture was a book that I read about Frank Lloyd Wright by uh, an Italian author called Bruno Zevi, who was an architect, and then he had a magazine, L'Architettura. The title of the book was Toward an Organic Architecture, So he explained there the philosophy of Frank Lloyd Wright and organic architecture. 
So when I read it, I thought, well, yeah, this is it, you know. The philosophy was all about uh, growth and evolution, among other things. And uh, John Laudner definitely followed that philosophy, but it was understood to him that that philosophy did not have to translate itself necessarily in forms that looked like Frank Lloyd Wright's designs, but that philosophy was uh, really open. So within that concept, you could just evolve and grow like in nature. Everything was based on learning by doing. That's how Frank Lloyd Wright pretty much treated his so-called apprentices, and uh, John Lautner never taught. He just would give you a project and you would you know, solve the project and go back and forth, uh, show it to him and get a critique, or he would say, oh, this is fine, continue. So I feel like I'm continuing that philosophy because it's timeless. And again, it is about incorporating new technologies all the time. So it does not have to be limited to something strictly that Frank Lloyd Wright did, but it has plenty of room for growth. So I think that would answer this lady's question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for me, it was a growth process. Yeah. You know, our industry has seen a lot of technological change. You've probably seen a lot of change throughout your career. Are there examples of things that you do differently now from when you first started? Or is your method pretty consistent? Well, I still uh, use three-dimensional models as tools of design because they allow me to see it, you know, three-dimensionally. Uh, they are rough cardboard models, but they really represent what I'm trying to do. And uh, at the same time, they test the structure because if it holds up in cardboard the way, you know, I intend to, I, and I have a fairly strong background in structures. I mean, we had four years of structures in school, and by the way, often taught by women uh, structure engineers. So it's a test, uh -huh. the model. So I think it's always valid. And to me, it's more consistent, both for myself and for my clients, to understand how this building works than uh, 3D, you know, in, in a computer, even if it's a walkthrough, which has an Im important role right? Because it gives you the whole, the feeling. But still, I'm guided by my previous experience. So I use the new tools, or if I don't know how to use them myself, I employ other people and have them, you know, work with me on that. That's great. You also mentioned, um, like in your, your presentation, you had given credit to the builders for their role in making the architecture come to life. And I think um, that was also integral with, I think, a lot of Lautner's projects. They're so 
unconventional that they're really difficult to build. And those builders, I'm sure probably a lot of them aren't working anymore. So how do you go about finding um, someone who's qualified to build your work? Well, those builders, the two best builders who built a number of Lautner homes, uh, passed away. But they trained younger people. So I use, when I can, the younger people. Or uh, if the client has somebody he wants to use, I would certainly work with that person. Or if he doesn't, then I would just get referrals mm -hmm. to several builders and have them bid on the plans. And I would interview them and then have them interview the, the client. So he would decide, he or she would decide who he wants to hire. It's not easy, but you still find people who really take a lot of pride in their work, especially if they're doing something so unusual that they can really, you know, feel proud by showing to other clients. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you probably also have clients coming to you who most likely have a... a decent budget and a pretty good uh, understanding of what architecture is and and the process. So um, I would imagine that that maybe finding the budget to employ those types of contractors is a little bit easier. Yeah, well, sometimes uh, the budget is unreasonably low if you compare it to what the client would like to build for that budget. But generally, I consider my obligation to design within the budget. So uh, it takes often, you know, more ingenuity to design something uh, simpler and easy to build, and you also have to allow for local technology. I mean, if you're building in different states or different countries, what are the local builders used to work with? That's important, mm -hmm. too. So um, you have to be able to design for a budget. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... I think that's really smart. Um, it sounds like you're pretty flexible in terms of an, an understanding of how you're going to get the best built project out of the circumstances that you're given. Right. What happens is that magazines tend to publish the most expensive and larger homes than the smaller ones. So then you get a reputation that you can only build, you know, for the very wealthy, which is something that John Lautner had. He got that reputation, which discouraged sometimes just regular people from approaching him. But that was not the case. He did also small projects, but they oh. were not as widely published. That's really interesting because his you're right. I mean, his reputation is for these luxury homes on difficult hilltop sites. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you've worked then for a range of different types of clients, actually. That's right. That's Even right. though... The work that we see is often the most spectacular, probably the biggest budgets. <laughs> 
Yeah, and it's it's fun too. You know? One of the things that one of the students asked you was what the highlight of your career was, and and your response was that I well, I hope it hasn't happened. <laughs> the high point hasn't happened yet. Right. So I want to ask you um, what your dream commission would be. Well, uh, I I don't think I really have a dream commission. It's just the the next commission is always you know the next challenge and it's exciting. So I'm always looking for the next one and the next one. Have you ever come across a project where at the very beginning you thought, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to do this? Or has it always been kind of easy for you? Well, not that it was easy, but um, I enjoyed uh, uh, the challenge of finding a solution for, for every problem. Besides this point, I would like to say that John Lautner always had women designers or architects working for him as well as men. And I heard from him directly the comment that he believed that women were more conscientious, more dedicated, more hardworking and responsible than the guys. That's why, you know, he hired women, uh-huh. which I thought, well, you know, he's right. Because in my experience also as a woman in architecture, you are kind of pressured to prove yourself. So you have to work harder and know more and be better prepared than the guys to get the credit that you deserve. So I tend to respect that in other women and help them out when I can. Yeah, I think, you know, there's been a lot of um, research or reports about why women leave the profession. And two of the reasons that are often cited is uh, one, hitting a, a glass ceiling and two, becoming a parent. You overcame both of those, I think. I mean, you were the chief architect in his office and then took on the office after he passed, and you've had a child. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about why you think maybe they were challenges, maybe they weren't, but how are you able to do all of that? Well, uh, I think to a great extent with the help of my husband, who was, uh, in a way, well, a good father, but in a way, both mother and father. And in my case, you know, the, the same thing. So we got organized. We had our child uh, 12 years after we were married. So we were, you know, already fairly responsible parents. And it happened that uh, I became pregnant while I was working on the Hope House. So I was going back and forth all the time. Luckily, I was feeling fine up to the date my daughter was born. So I had to drive to Palm Springs and had very long meetings with Mrs. Hope. And then in the evening, I will drive back. And um, 
at the beginning, I took three weeks off, but then I made an arrangement with John Lautner that I worked two days a week from my home. So we took turns with my husband, and I had my mother living nearby, so she helped as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, among the three of us, we raised the child. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a little hard, definitely, when she was growing up. You know, as a mother, you always feel a little guilty that why you're not spending more time with your child or why you're not spending more time at work. So, right. <laughs> but one thing balances the other. So if you have a cooperative partner, Mm -hmm. it it works. Yeah. I mean, I feel lucky that I I do. (laughs) I know that's not always the case. Um, I think it's really also, it's it's unusual and commendable that John Lautner also was open to that. Yes. And my, my daughter looked at him as if he was like a grandpa figure. Uh, she played the piano and when she got to be, you know, quite good, he would go to her concerts. And on one occasion, he brought her a bouquet of 100 roses. Oh my gosh. So, uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> right. So. <laughs> She really loved him. Yeah. Wow. That's really special. I mean, I I hear about um, like Italiason and Italiason West that there was always music and all these, you know, interest in the arts and performing. And Mm -hmm. was that similar Mm -hmm. with John Lautner then? Yes, he was interested in music. We would go to concerts together, him and his wife and sometimes my husband, my daughter and I. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were pregnant on the Hope House, and then you just went back out there and you worked on the restoration of it. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, then right after uh, the Hope House, I, I was assigned you know, to this house in Malibu the, called the Concrete Castle, mm, that which one's... is the, the freeform yeah. concrete house. So that was very, very exciting. It is. And I would always sit at the first meeting you know, with John Lautner and meet the client and write down you know, the meeting notes. So I would become familiar with the client requirements right from the beginning. That's great. And then how did the design process work? Did John Lautner come up with the design and then like you said sort of hand it to you and say go for it (laughs) or like was there a back and forth during that process Uh, there was a back and forth in in this one it was something very unusual happened because he said why don't you do a design and i do a design and then we critique each other oh cool so i thought wow (laughs) yeah yeah that's amazing. Right. And then, you know, uh, I uh, I built the model. You know, if you turn back and you, you see that it's still a construction photo with, uh, you know, the sloping walls. I tried this sloping wall that was facing a neighbor that uh, the client never wanted to see because it was an ugly house. So he said, put me something there so I don't ever see that house. 
And besides, the property is on the uh, highway, so there was quite a bit of noise from trucks going up and down the highways. It was necessary to build solid walls that would block the noise. And with this idea of the free form, I just took a piece of corrugated cardboard and twisted it. And I thought, wow, this looks you know, really exciting, and I showed it to Mr. Lautner, and uh, he said, wow, yeah, you know, this looks really good, but I said, it will be a pain, you know, really hard to build this wall. Never mind, let's go ahead with it. So it was a collaborative thing. That's so cool. And in fact, um, the model was built first, and it looked exactly, the house looked exactly like the model, as I showed uh, right. in my lecture, the model. And I had to come up with a system to do the drawings. Was um, that the one that you, yeah, you took that the I pictures? Photographed. That's right, that's right. So all this was uh, very exciting, because yeah. you really have to, you know, figure things out. That must have felt really awesome to um, get that sort of, not just the opportunity, but that approval, too. Yes. So sometimes it, it varied with every job. Sometimes uh, John Lautner would do quite a bit of drawing first. Uh, other times he would just gesture, you know, do go like this. You know, let's do something like this. So you can see the ocean and you can see the mountains on the opposite side. And that was it. Hmm. <laughs> well, it sounds like the two of you had a good working relationship. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, it was very, very exciting. Yeah, I think for me, what I admire the most about how you practice is the marriage of the idea and the experience and the, the creativity of it, but also that you are able to get those things built. And, you know, the structure is married to the idea of how that space is formed. And mm -hmm. I think all of that is really impressive. Um, I, I just admire that about, about yeah, you. Yeah, the structure is integral to the... It's like the skeleton of a living being, right? You cannot imagine something without it. Right. But it's so much harder to be that creative and inventive, but then actually make it work. So um, I just wanted to share my admiration for you <laughs> on that. Well, you have to persist yeah yeah um and then of course it's important to have some knowledge in terms of how to treat the clients so you have to be a psychologist sometimes in a way to understand what's important for them and then the business side which we always leave for last yeah but it's still you know a skill that you need to survive in your practice. Absolutely. You've survived for f over 50 years doing That's this. That's right. Um, did you learn that, the business side from John Lautner, or did you? I, I learned what not to do on the <laughs> business side from John Lautner. 
I imagine he was often taken advantage, you know. Oh wow! And because he loved his work so much that he would never give up and continue whether he was paid or not. Wow! So I thought it was very unfair, you know, to be taken advantage of. Yeah. So I learned, you know, I. But it happens to every architect, you know. You never know what kind of client you're going to get. So usually the clients investigate the architect, but the architect also needs to check the clients out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised, I guess, only because um, a lot of times to be a creative person or an artist and dedicated to your work, a lot of times the business side sort of suffers. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yes, I, I assume you must have a lot of... Um, wisdom in that area because you've you've weathered through at this point like how many recessions you know mm -hmm. do you have any advice on that like how to make it through the good times and the the bad times well it's rough and the bad times so you just have to avoid overspending in the good times but always save something for the bad times <laughs> yeah <laughs> So you can survive. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, I appreciate your taking the time to sit with me and offer your advice and your stories. I really admire everything you've been well, able to achieve. Thank you so much for saying so. And um, yeah, I wish um, you know more women will become architects and persist. And that's our show. I'd like to extend my gratitude to Helena for taking the time to talk with me and share her stories. Thank you as well to Linda Patton, St. Teresa Catholic School, and 8th graders Abriana Pingleton, Shalomith Hoy, Tyler Bloomer, Santiago Garza, and Julia Fidel for letting me tag along and record their conversation. Thank you as well to Modernism Week organizers, especially Bob Bogard and Mark Davis for putting me in touch with Helena. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. You can find out more about the show at xx-la.com or find me on social media at xxla podcast. Thanks for listening and please stay safe and healthy out there.